0: Hello, welcome to this final session of the Constitution Unit Summer Conference on the Future of the Constitution. I'm Meg Russell and I'm the Director of the Constitution Unit and I'm here to chair this final session with our very illustrious guests. Um, As people who've been at earlier sessions of the conference will know, we've been trying to be very future focused at this conference, looking across the broad uh, gamut of the Constitution. We've had uh, sessions on Parliament, devolution and the Union, the courts and the rule of law, elections and electoral reform and constitutional standards. And our focus very much is not the past and what may have gone wrong. Uh, But looking ahead to the future with a general election on the horizon, almost certainly in 2024 and thinking about what parties might be putting in their manifestos and what the next government might be. going to do, which doesn't mean that we can't talk about what the current government uh, could do very quickly and it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that the next government is going to be a different kind of government to the current government, because uh, a year is certainly a long time in politics. We've heard a lot of ideas on our earlier panels about things that can be done quickly, things that can be done uh, with more effort through legislation and so on, and a very wide range uh, of stuff. But the question is, how how do you actually get this done? And how does it all fit together? Uh, we're all perhaps to some extent constitutional obsessives by virtue of being here, uh, but the country and any government will be very much uh, Focused on other public concerns, the state of the economy, uh, foreign affairs, the state of the NHS, etc., etc. And these issues, although people consider them important, are perhaps relatively low salience concerned compared to some of those. So, how do we get constitutional reform prioritised and put into practice? Um, How should parties approach this before the election, and how should it be approached? Uh, when in government. We've got two fantastically well-qualified people here with uh, very significant experience close to and in the centre of government. Uh, I will introduce them briefly. Uh, We have Sir David Lidington, who was the Conservative MP for Aylesbury for 27 years, from Mm. 1992 to 2019. He was a Foreign Office Minister in the coalition government. He then served under Theresa May as leader of the House of Commons, Lord Chancellor, and finally, within the Cabinet, uh, from the Cabinet Office as effectively Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, former claims to fame include, I think, uh, leading the uh, winning team on University Indeed. Challenge <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few more years ago uh, <laughs> yes. and being a special advisor to Douglas Hurd mm. in the 1980s. Uh, He's now on the board of the Institute for Government and he chairs the Royal United Services Institute, among other things. And he had a terrific article in the Political Quarterly recently, if anybody hasn't seen it, on a conservative case for constitutional reform. And then we have Charlie Faulkner, Lord Faulkner of Thornton, uh, who's been a member of the House of Lords for Labour since 1997. Um, He served as a minister in the Home Office and the Department for Transport, Local Government and the Regions. He was secretary of state for constitutional affairs and the first lord chancellor after the the uh, constitutional reform act 2005 serving until 2010. charlie's still a practicing barrister um, and on appointment to the lords uh famously got into the papers quite often as uh, tony blair's former flatmate uh when you were young uh young uh lawyers together um and seen as a confidant of Blair uh, from way back when. And of course, Tony Blair uh, was a prime minister who arrived in government with a big and ambitious constitutional reform program, much of which went on to happen. Um, so we're gonna have a bit of a chat um, and then we're gonna throw it out to the audience for questions. Um, those tuning in on Zoom will be able to see that this is a rather different event to all of the others in the conference in that we do have an in-person audience here, uh, a relatively small but actually pleasingly large uh, invited audience of people here in the room so in terms of questions i am going to turn to the room first um and there is A Q&A function in zoom which people are invited to use but i i'm not sure whether we'll get to the zoom audience um because we actually have quite a lot of people here in the room like all the panels at this conference, uh, this is being recorded and it will be made available as a video after the event on our YouTube channel. And it will also be an edition of our podcast. Uh, so when you're asking questions, do bear that in mind that you are being recorded. So that is plenty from me. So um, we haven't really had much of a chance to uh, choreograph this, uh, but um, David and Charlie, um, you both have a passionate interest in constitutional reform, and you've both been there, right at the centre. Could you maybe just, very briefly, give us a flavour of what it's like at the centre of government and where constitutional issues sort of sit in the hierarchy, um, and just just how how frantic it is and how things get noticed and and you know where this is likely to. Where this is likely to be in the priority list for a new government. We have no priority. Charlie's ready to Uh, go?
1: Yes. Uh, First, my experience of being at the centre of government in relation to constitutional reform is that one's political colleagues have next to no enthusiasm for constitutional reform. That is putting it benignly. Many of one's colleagues have a positive opposition the constitutional reform. Three particular reforms that we did, which were particularly resisted internally, were freedom of information, which many of my governmental colleagues thought was mad. And my good friend, Tony Blair said was the worst mistake he had made. Even after we'd been in government for about 10 minutes was regarded as a bad idea. Secondly, Lord's reform was regarded as a bad idea for two separate reasons. First, the commons are constantly anxious that this will somehow affect their primacy. And they're constantly worried this may affect the prime minister's ability to bestow patronage. And then thirdly, human rights was consistently resisted on the basis it gave judges too much power when the politicians want to keep power. So point number one, one's political colleagues are normally against it. Point number two, it does happen if there is either a very big parliamentary majority or there is a very profound sense that some part of the Constitution is not working. And the ability of the politicians to say no to it is thereby compromised.
0: David, you were in the, I mean, your last period in government was a an unusually troubled one during the Brexit years. And I think that aside from one big constitutional reform, there probably wasn't much focus on anything else. But you were also there in less central mm. positions during the, the Cameron Clegg years, of mm. course, when there were big ambitions. How would you say? I mean, I, I agree
2: with, with, with everything Charlie has just uh, described. Um, but I would add this, that um, when you're at the centre of government, and I think it's true, the more senior, senior posts post you hold within the government the greater the pressures are on the diary um, and the pressures of events and every prime minister every senior secretary of state has people clamoring for you know 15 minutes of their time Um, there is always a backlog of decisions each of which on its merits should be regarded as both urgent and important and in those circumstances I think what is true is that on the whole constitutional affairs, as Charlie said, tend to come to the fore and grab attention when there is a crisis when something is visibly not working. Um, So in in my my case in one example was uh, the uh, the Scottish and Welsh governments who were kicking up a very big fuss and and no, I heard from them both and I, I. Look, check the record, and it was true that the committee that was meant to um, consult them and coordinate approach to how one implemented the referendum result had not met for a year. That was clearly indefensible, I and mean, we did something about that. Um, but that was just an example of um, things coming to uh, the fore because there was a crisis. Otherwise, it is um, it's easily pushed once over everything else. On top of that most but not all constitutional reforms need legislation and there are always far more bids by secretaries of state for legislation than there is legislative time available in any one parliamentary session when i was leader of the house one of the jobs of the leader of the house is to chair this body called pbl the uh, public business and legislation committee that usually meets in this subterranean um sort of lower ministerial conference room um in in the palace of Westminster and your job as leader of the house in particular is to beat up your cabinet colleagues and tell them that they can't have the bill that they've dreamed of or you, that you're going to excise great chunks mm. from it just to ensure that it is manageable and particularly if you have a small majority or a uh, uh, no majority um that you can assemble a majority character, through the, the Commons, and then you've got to take account of the House of Lords, where nobody has a majority and the guillotine procedure is not available to you. So, um, legislation is a uh, even if you've got attention on the issue, getting a legislative slot if you need legislation is difficult. But my final point be this sometimes a significant constitutional change can be effected without legislation and without a crisis in government. The example I, I would give is at the very end of the Labour Party's term in office. Um, Tony Wright, sort of, um, uh, then a Labour MP, produced a report on select committees and reforms the select committee system that got all party support across the backbenches, both Conservative and Labour, and the pressure on the respective front benches from their backbenches was such that they felt they had no option but to implement most of what Tony had proposed, which is why you have select committee chairs elected by the House as a whole, rather than being creatures of whips office patronage, and that is an indubitably strengthened the authority of select committees in terms of public
3: debate.
0: And clearly, I, I don't want to re rerun entirely a, a very good seminar, which is still available for recording online that we did with Charlie a year or so ago on uh, the. 25th anniversary of the 97 election, I think, where we talked a lot about the program in 97. But it is interesting to think a little bit briefly about the parallels, because notwithstanding what you say about how difficult it was, that was a huge program. An awful lot happened very quickly. And so I think to just come back to you a bit, how did it happen and Maybe if we start, if we think our way through the process, starting with the pre-election period, how ready do parties need to be in order to enter and successfully implement reform? And what, what would your advice be perhaps to Labour now in terms of readiness to implement change?
1: I mean, having been uh, rather damning about political enthusiasm for constitutional reform, there is from time to time a tide in the affairs of man where the moment appears incredibly ripe and the moment in 1997 or in the build up to 1997 appeared incredibly ripe for constitutional reform and the reason for that was the the, the sense within the country and I say that rather wildly but I do think there was a sense that the Conservative government had completely run out of steam over a very long period of time both it, well, primarily in Scotland, and to a lesser degree in Wales, to a very considerably less degree in Wales, there was a sense that the constitutional position of Scotland had to change because of the constitutional opposition to uh, there being no devolution of any sort and the opposition to the conservative government within Scotland. And in relation to the way that the Labour Party was presenting itself at that particular time, we were a modernizing, government, and in particular, aim to modernise the Constitution as a whole. So there there was a moment in time where big constitutional change was specifically put on the table and it reflected a sense of the way the country might change if the Labour Party won. It would never have happened if there had not been massive amounts of preparation prior to 1997 because any attempt to effect very major constitutional change, unless it's properly prepared, goes completely right. We were ready on devolution. We were ready on human rights and freedom. We, were, well, we thought we were ready on freedom of information, but I don't know if you remember, we produced a white paper, which by this time, the, the, as it were, the forces of darkness had rather risen to the fore, and that was ditched. Um, What we and we were ready to get rid of the hereditary peers in the in the in the laws, we weren't ready with any detailed proposal for electoral reform in the Lord's. We were ready, to some extent, for steps to electoral reform, but unfortunately the political will melted away in my party, the moment we had a majority of 150, why would you ever (laughs) want to share power, why would you ever think you were going to need to share power so preparation. And is there a tide that is in favour of it? And I mean, at the moment. Do feel
0: free, of course, in in these remarks to talk about how organisations like the Constitution Unit helped (laughs) in having the detailed plans. (laughs) Because it's not just the Constitution Unit these days. We've got people here from the Institute for Government who, of course, produce, and David is involved in Mm -hmm. that, who produce reports full of detailed proposals. And I I think that was useful. It was
1: incredibly useful. And you're absolutely right. The Constitution Unit was incredibly important in preparing for helping us prepare both in detailed conversations with Labour and opposition, and in the reports that were written, and in beyond that, as it were, making people address the detail of those issues, both within the Labour Party, which then became the Labour government, but more broadly, so that when the time came, it, it looked possible to do it. I mean, the, the, uh, there's a huge amount of discussion at the moment about electoral reform, uh, because there is a sense the system is not working in a whole variety of ways there's absolutely no real thought gone in anywhere as to what that might look like and how you would build a consensus mm. in relation to it, and it feels incredibly dependent upon what the result al- of the resulting election. Will and of be. course
0: that happened later because that came through the Jenkins Commission, yeah, didn't it? Yeah. which was one when we come to sort of how you plan things. Starting commissions, starting reviews mm. is something yeah. that you can get going very early to
1: you might want to start a commission or review, or you might want to go straight for a particular reform. I mean, my own view at the moment is that there will be probably no appetite except for changes that address, as it were, the sense of stink about our uh, elected constitution at the moment. So, for example, we should be thinking about how you ensure compliance with things like the ACABA arrangements. We should, for example, be thinking about how you get rid of the, uh, the hereditary peers, the remaining ones, probably by stopping the by-elections and thereafter letting them die out. We should be thinking about how you reduce the size of the House of Lords. We should be thinking about how you ensure proper standards of propriety within the Commons. But these are, these probably, these are important. they're not massive but they could be done by legislation that could pass without there being a massive taking up of legislative time which David was saying
0: would be a problem David having been in the center in in government what are the what are the appropriate mechanisms mechanism makes it sound very much like it's to do with um, sort of all specific specific organizations. I that one thing I was going to say to you is I think you I read somewhere that you chaired I think an unprecedented number of cabinet committees. Uh, when you that like it? Yeah. So cabinet committees are one way of doing this, yeah. obviously sort of organizationally. But in terms of tying everything together, you know, can can you just talk to us about how to think through what goes in the first what goes in the first year, what goes in the second year? How you get things in the legislative programme, or what you you do non-legislative. When
2: when you're appointed as a minister after a general election, then uh, your um, senior officials come to you, and they have a folder, and they will have prepared a colour-coded folder um, for uh, a minister of all parties that the civil service thinks might um, uh, get into government. I, I, I think that in 2010 they very hurriedly prepared some orange folders um you know to to have available um but normally there'll be a red folder and a blue folder and the um the folder appropriate to you will have a list of those things pertaining to your ministerial responsibilities that were in your party's manifesto or your boss secretary of state if you if you are the secretary of state or the leader of your party the new prime minister or the uh the new chancellor has committed themselves too, Uh, and so they will be saying, "Look, you, um, this is uh, what you want to do." Now Um, we suggest that um, these might uh, you want to understand your priorities. Uh, So uh, 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 this is our first guess at those. Are we right about that? Then you will, as the the minister, be presented over a number of weeks with a series of decisions about this. But the the first Queen speech will have been worked out um, in opposition you know whether it's Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer who is waving from the steps of number 10 in November next year um, there will have been a meeting of uh, the leader and key advisors and trusted cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers to decide what will be in the first Queen's speech, which bills have priority, and those would have been rubber stamped by the cabinet or shadow cabinet um, as a whole. So that will all be spoken for, and the, and the officials will know that because the op- if it's the opposition that comes into government, they will have had conversations with the permanent secretaries of each of the Whitehall departments. So the, the top officials in each department will know what the priorities of the Labour Party will be, or elected soon government would be uh, next time. And so that so you're anything beyond that you're looking at year two or later, so what you do as a minister is is to work up the policy you through a series of right rounds and cabinet committee meetings you. seek collective agreement for the policy content of what you want to do, and then for each stage of drafting a bill for a bills content, then you have to go to the business managers, the leader of the House, the chief whips of both houses. Uh, And ultimately PBL committee and say look, this is, this is my bid, assuming it's the Secretary of State backs it, this is my bid for this year and then. It will be considered, along with all the others and the business managers will take a steer from Prime Minister as to what he or she wishes to see as a priority. Um, They will take a view from the the Chancellor says we can't afford it scrap it, it probably will be scrapped. uh, there will be a view, there'll be a reading of the backbench mood within the governing party, there'll be a reading of by the Lords, business managers, of the mood in the House of Lords, the degree of opposition, um, and the decisions will be taken about the priority of the bills accordingly.
0: One of the things that concerns me about that is you're talking very much about you the minister, people bring things to you. Yeah. There is no minister for constitutional reform, of course, some of this is lies in Mm. the moj some of it lies in the cabinet office some of it's currently in leveling up you've got stuff that the leader of the House of Commons might want to do. I don't know where House of Lords reform necessarily sits it it sat with the Lord Chancellor in Mm. the lords, of course, back in 1997 Mm -hmm. so as a sort of doyen of of cabinet committees, David, how, how would you coordinate. A constitutional reform. Oh, if I, if Should I was, that be yeah. a committee? Should it be a minister?
2: It, 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 I mean, it, it, I mean, ideally, first of all, I would, you know, if I was a, were a prime minister who wanted to implement a a program of constitutional reform, I would, I would first of all ensure there was clarity over this. And I think there's two ways in which you could do this. You can give it to the minister for the cabinet office, who, in my view, ought to be always uh, the deputy prime minister with that title because they're in effect looking after the corporate. HQ of government and the implementing machinery, coordinating machinery of government. And you probably have a Minister of State there who uh, has particular responsibility for constitutional affairs as well. Um, or you could locate it with the Lord Chancellor's office, particularly if you decided to um, reverse some of the reforms of the Blair government and you put the, um, say, prisons, probation um, back with the Home Office or the uh, and and you then um, had a, a, a Lord Chancellor's office that was much more focused on the judiciary, and you could say constitutional affairs mm. as well. So there'd be two ways in which you could do that. Um, uh, you could even have a completely new department for constitutional affairs with its own Secretary of State and a coordinating role uh, with the devolved administrations and parliaments and I hope to see with the English regional sub regional devolution. As well, so there are different ways of doing it, but clarity uh, accountability clear set of responsibilities and you, you would move on from from that point, but I would also. Um, you no, know, I think I do think things like commissions have a part to play, mm-hmm. I think that in this country we're, we've been slow to take up the citizens jury. ideas There's always nervousness amongst MPs about this, but you look at how Ireland has done, and it does seem to have worked there and actually that sort of process enables you to tease out some of the potential problems and actually get a gauge of where the difficulties with public opinion as well as practical implementation might be
0: you you may want to comment on this from from experience of i mean one of the things that people have although the labor re- reform program was very successful, people have complained that even the labor reform program was rather disjointed. There was no sort of overall vision. So, so what do you think about these questions of how you tie it all together?
3: Uh, I mean, uh,
1: you do need somebody <laughs> with an overall responsibility for the constitution in government, both to indicate where the strains are and to assist in making it work. So there are so many constitutional pressures the whole time most obviously with the devolved administrations Scotland gives rise to very different problems mm. to Wales yep. Northern Ireland gives rise to very particular problems when I was appointed the Secretary of State for constitutional affairs in two th- in 2003 I was also appointed as the minister responsible for the devolved uh parliaments as well mm. on the basis that you did need somebody who wanted to try to make the whole constitutional settlement work and I think you should. One should focus on the need for a very strong constitutional minister to make the existing system work rather than to simply yeah, be right, a driver yeah. of the way that mm. you reform mm. it mm. and that, yes. such, yeah. that, that that person has got to have political strength um what David describes about about the process for fixing a a queen's speech now a king's speech and the and the and the committees that need to go through it is absolutely right. You're never going to get a major constitutional reform <laughs> program from that process. That process no, that's right. is absolutely right. yeah. after yeah. Uh, yeah. the decisions have been made. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you, you need, no constitutional reform will occur mm. of any significance unless there is a big political driver for it, which probably means either the prime minister yeah. or somebody of enormous impact within a government and the prime minister at least has
2: to support yes, that
1: secretary of state exactly. not and, oppose it and remember what the prime minister is thinking the whole time is how do i get my party re-elected yeah. i mean obviously mm. he or she is thinking of big things as well but the job of the prime minister is to lead the government and to lead the party to an electoral victory if you can imagine whoever takes over in 2024 whether it be rishi sunak or Keir starmer you're taking over in a moment of a cost of living mm. crisis, exactly. uh, mortgages incredibly mm. high. I propose that my first step should be appointment of a commission to consider electoral reform. <laughs> I think we've had a lot of trouble with the Lords and it's insufficient legitimacy. Let's make them all elected. You saw what happened to your partners, mm. the Lib Dems, yep. when they tried that alternative um, vote um, mm. manifest um, ref- referendum. and it, it had such political dissonance. Mm. And so uh, the, the, yeah. the, there isn't, I suspect, in the context of this sense of economic failure and impropriety, which are the two sort of driving motivations at the moment, there won't be a sense that those two sorts of things, electoral reform and elect making the constitution more elected will be a big driving thing. But as I keep coming back to, there are so many things you could do mm. which would have resonance as part of a bigger picture. Yeah. Just whilst David was talking this idea of these officials coming to you. When I first became a cabinet, minister, I don't know if you remember, it was in 2003 and we announced that we were going to abolish the Lord Chancellor. <laughs> uh, no <laughs> officials came to me and said, here are your options. Broadly, yes. the officials Uh, came to me and said could we have sight of the bag packet on which this (laughs) was written so there are occasions I mean but I mean you laugh I laugh but ultimately you can you can do constitutional reform if you're absolutely driving it politically as we were at that particular because practically everybody was against it we had a big majority we absolutely drove it Uh, um, and I mean I thought for the good in a whole variety of ways but political politicians can drive reform if they're absolutely committed but yeah. most politicians will be focusing on what yeah. are the things that most affect yeah. I, the think electorate. A, I
0: think a lot of this is about coordination isn't it of different kinds mm. so there's the coordination when it comes to just the the phasing the planning the what mm. could you do in in what order but then mm. there's also tying the reforms together so yeah. what you're doing on the Commons fits with what you're doing in the Lords and fits with what you're doing to the Lords fits with what's happening in devolution and so on and those are intellectually very big tasks and
1: have they ever been considered as a coherent whole we have been, we have no written constitution it, all the bits of our constitution become under strain for different reasons so for example the Lords is very big under strain in public accountability or esteem at the moment because of the massive use of the patronage to appoint Lords so the Lords are not well regarded because there are too many unsatisfactory people in the Lords by way of the appointments process, and that's where the Lords fits in. The Lords come un- came under a huge strain at the beginning of the twentieth century because it rejected the People's Budget, or because of the risk that it was going to do something terrible in relation to Northern Ireland.
2: And I think I think I agree with Charlie that there is a need for a Secretary of State and a function in central government clearly responsible for constitutional affairs, because even if you made no significant new reforms there are important bits of our constitutional arrangements that are not stable at the moment the relationship with the devolved authorities between mm. them and the uk government and how we try to make work the new intergovernmental mm. agreement um, is one example of that how we ensure that related to that england is represented and the english interest expressed within uh, the Whitehall. Arrangements, and in terms of contribution to negotiations on international agreements, in the mm-hmm. way that the Scottish and Welsh governments and Northern Ireland executive would express the views of those parts of the UK, we haven't got a comparable arrangement for England. It's uneasy mm-hmm. UK ministers deal with England, and we need to sort that out. The other thing to bear in mind is that sometimes Parliament sets the ball rolling itself, and it's very much Tony Wright's um, reforms came after pressure from that benches to get on and do something and organizational bodies like the procedure committee mm-hmm. of the house of commons the constitutional affairs committee of the house of lords can play a significant role both in developing ideas but also when it comes to house of commons in particular really um putting pressure on the government even sometimes the back benches on their own government so things mean i would I think I really think need to be done. That um, it should be routine, in my view, for bills, bar the rare emergency bit of legislation, to receive um, scrutiny in draft form before the formal legislative process. I think it would improve their quality. Um, And I think we need to do something uh, about to reform the programming, which I think is now being used by governments of all colours to uh, avoid awkward and embarrassing Mm. debates. Uh, now, you know what the option I rather like is to keep programming, but you give the backbench business committee uh, the power to decide on the programming for each bill, um, and they proceed by consensus there. So, um, the uh, the government backbenchers ultimately have a majority. So, you know, I think you might look at those sorts of problems. you don't need primary legislation mm. yeah. for those. Yeah, That's,
0: but... like, if there, it's a different. It's, it's interesting. That is an entirely different set of processes, isn't yes. it? In terms of the Commons, which controls its own procedures. Uh, There's no legislation, no going to the Lords, and that's a sort of parallel track. But it's only certain things that can be achieved, obviously, within the Commons. Then you've got the legislation. But then you've got the things that you can do without either. And I I want to throw it out to the audience in, in just a moment. But let me just end on on this one that we've been trying to think during today. And if I'm allowed, I didn't ask Hannah's permission for this, but I was going to mention it at the end. So let me mention it now. Uh, that the institute for government and constitution <laughs> are currently working on a little report on the options for constitutional uh, reform uh, for the next government and we're dividing it into what we're calling quick wins mm, which are yeah. the things that you could effectively do within the first 100 days mm. they don't need legislation they may not need much consultation there are th- there are plenty of things that yeah. you can do you by tr- seeking to change convention by using prerogative powers Things that you can announce on the steps of Downing Street, announce new reviews and so on. You've got that stuff, and then you've got the stuff that needs legislation or, or wider consultation mm. that you need to program in year one, year two, year three. And then you've got the really big difficult stuff. Yeah. So how do you how should a, a, a government or an aspirant government balance those things? And maybe also what would your quick wins be?
1: Well, I think you've got to make a decision about whether you're interested in any particularly big constitutional reform. If you're interested in, for example, electoral reform, then you can't go straight into it. If you want to do that, you'd have to set up a Jenkins Commission Mm. part two. You can announce that straight away and that would be processed in that direction. But I, I wonder whether there'll be any appetite for that. Secondly, there's a whole range of commitments you could make straight away. Like you will never send to the House of Lords somebody rejected, by HOLAC. You could, for example, say you will require ministers to sign a contractually binding document saying that they've got to comply with the ACABA proposals, uh, uh, instructions, and if they don't, they are liable to be in breach of a contract or an obligation Mm -hmm. entered into or an undertaking entered into by the state. Uh, Thirdly, you could say that you would invite the political parties straight away to reach an agreement on how they reduce the size of the House of Lords, all of those not requiring legislation, all of those, I will not send somebody without holy permission. ministers have got to enter into contractive binding undertakings in relation to ACABA, you invite the political parties to agree reductions in the numbers, they can have permanent mm. effects, because it's not just, well the whole one one minute of a permanent effect, because you might have another Boris Johnson who'd come along and Say, well, I'm now the prime minister, I'll have anybody.
0: But we've never had a convention of the prime minister committing to a balance among the number of peers made or, oh, yeah. or the, number of the, the number of peers made. So we haven't even got a convention well, to break. Uh, so mean, trying to create one would be And the stop, consequence of it? there
1: not being such a convention is you now have this very if political mm. position in relation to the Lords where it, it, the, 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 the most populous minority in the Lords is the Conservative Party. The second most populous group is the crossbenchers, and the third most populous group is the um, Labour Party, then the Little Dems. The Conservatives have appointed people who are much younger than my colleagues in the Labour group. So you see a lot of incredibly sprightly um, Tory peers who were appointed years ago and still look over 45, (laughs) whereas (laughs) our peers are all appointed at an enormous age and are now very, very old. we're older, smaller, so we... we
2: I, I remember the mirror
1: image of that happening in some 1997,
2: 1998, and, <laughs> and, and, and so on, Charlie.
1: I mean, but, I mean the, 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 sin isn't all on one side. Just, yeah. just to take up what Meg is saying, there are those things that don't require legislation at all. There are then things that you can do yeah. by legislation, like, for example, you can stop the hereditary by-elections straight away. And would there be any opposition to that? From I mean, if there was, I mean, who would I mean? Maybe the Conservatives would oppose it, but you're assuming for these, Lord rees small. Lord <laughs> rees but you, you, yes. you would, you would, you, you you would assume on this basis that there would be a Labour majority of some sort, so you could do mm. that. You could put Holak on a statutory basis at that particular. And several so of
0: these other bodies, as CSPL has proposed. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
1: And then it's your third group, mm. mega, yeah, yeah, which yeah. which there won't be an appetite for. Uh, but that comes much, much later.
0: So it sounds like i got to bring David in and then go to the audience. Charlie's sort of saying pick your fights, choose your one or two big things that you want to do and plan carefully. Do some stuff quickly that you don't need legislation for and then have some stuff in between. Do you agree with that? And I agree, I agree with, wins, I, I agree agree with would that would in a political
2: for? approach. I, I, I would I would I think would take um, pretty much the same box as Charlie. So and I would add uh, to that. Um, uh empowering the prime minister's uh, uh, ethics advisor to initiate his own yeah. investigations and not wait to be commissioned to do so um but i think i would also um make you could make some announcements um that could not be implemented sort of overnight but which would um i think um require that subsequent follow-up and implementation one in my view, should be a commitment to make the devolved settlement work. Um, that message, I think, it's important to send to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Is possible
0: reiteration um, of the Sewell Convention?
2: Re- reiteration, yeah, reiteration of Sewell I would, I would not put Sewell on a, uh, a, 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 sort of make it, make it binding in the way that the Scottish government wishes us to. To do, that, that would just on end our up were... um there. I think the.
1: I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of legislation <laughs> yeah. already yes, around it, yeah. which it's, gives effect to. But I, great charge
2: there are, there your, recommendations you, from
0: the Dunlop Review. Uh, yes, but it's already done in legislation. In legislation yeah. in in there
2: is the arrangement that we in government, like the deal I did with um, Carwin and um, Mark Drakeford to get the the first EU withdrawal bill through the House of Lords when I came into the Cabinet Office in 2018. Um, which was to establish by statute a procedure under which um, ministers had to report in a given timescale to the devolved governments and parliaments about what they wanted to do. And if there was a disagreement, if there was reviews of legislative consent motion, the reasons for that had to be reported back to parliament in Westminster within a given time frame. And those reasons published uh, glossed by the Secretary of State, and you know, we we set up a process Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. to ensure that their views could be properly Mm -hmm. uh, uh, considered by Parliament in the UK. Which then, the Welsh Government accepted, and the sovereign Mm -hmm. was entitled to make the final decision. So things you could do there. Both parties are (coughs) verbally committed to further devolution within England to, to 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 sub regional level. Now, again, that is something that could be said on day one or day two, even if it took some sort of legislation or I see Bridget, I
0: Bridget Fowler from the Hansard society before... at the back some sort of a statement about the the proper dividing line between delegated and primary legislation might be nice yeah. for example
1: right. <laughs> could, could I just pick up one thing that David said a few moments ago the idea of the back bench committee mm. of the house of commons fixing programming mm. which presumably carries with it the possibility of fixing identifying some legislation that doesn't get programmed at all because it's too important and it being as you say Mm. completely in the hands of the backbenchers Mm. even though they may be a majority of government backbenchers still they are not the government that would represent a massive change in the way that our parliament operated because the essence of our parliament or the commons not the laws and it's the commons that really matters is that the government not backbenchers the government determine all diary issues as it were or programming issues for backbenchers to start doing it would be a massive change it's, it's a return
2: to uh, an older part of our tradition we remember Charlie it was it was only in the 19th century when uh, the, in response to the Irish party's tactics in parliament that the closure guillotine procedure was introduced for the first time and the the automatic programming of all legislation is something that the Blair government initiated out of frustration at people like Eric Forth who were blocking legislation talking it long in the Commons in the way that uh, Dennis Skinner and Bob Cryer had, had had done in the major government so I think I think that there is it is I I make no apology for that. I want to see parliament strengthened at the expense of the executive and I actually think now we've had several generations of MPs who have not uh, come into world of all night sittings there will be no appetite to go back to that except in the most extreme circumstances. I I would trust the backbench business committee to come to a Uh, a sensible decision. There are some
0: interesting proposals in the Constitution (laughs) Unit report taking back control, which you can find on our website. I think you'll find things on the Hansard Society's website and on the Institute for Government's website. I promise to get to the audience and time is ticking away. And of course, we started late. So we have less time than we originally planned. Um, we have a really high quality audience here in the room. Let's take maybe three questions at once. And there's a roving microphone so that the people online can hear. Who's got the microphone? Tom, we've got one here. And could you say, for the benefit of the online audience, as well as others in the room, who you are?
4: Thank you. Uh, Alex Horn, I'm a barrister and visiting professor at Durham University. Um, Talking about um, sort of going into this type of reform, one thing that wasn't mentioned was the Brown government's Governance of Britain review, which may be because it was fairly forgettable, but it did identify quite a lot of problems that haven't been resolved, including things like the role of the Attorney General, the War Powers Convention, how Parliament deals with international agreements, Mm -hmm. and all manner of other things. We've now sort of moved on to a a sort of newly fashionable uh, group of other things, but is there a danger that we sort of move on slightly too quickly and 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 leave behind quite a lot of work that's already been done uh, when we're looking at doing this
0: interesting there's another brown report on the books these days of course uh, which i thought you were going to refer to philip
4: thank you philip norton lord norton of louth uh, one of the sprightly peers that charlie faulkner referred to um, <laughs> one, of the, uh, for, um, one of the most admired peers um, it, it? really to pursue a point with which i'm very much in agreement um but the problem arising from not having a minister who has designated responsibility and the problems that um creates now david touched upon the constitution Committee in the lords it produced a recent yeah. report on the position of the, the role of the lord chancellor and the law officers and what it raised was what david was touching on perhaps taking away aspects of the yeah you know, being secretary of state for justice prisons going back to him or something like that so you had a lord chancellor who was more focused on constitutional issues and picking up on some of the points you were alluding to somebody who's very senior can represent it protect the rule of law defend the constitution within cabinet as well as beyond but one what i wanted to pick up on was not just having a minister designated but known as that minister, because at the moment, in response to the Constitution Committee report, which is recent, the government's response kept emphasising the prime minister has ultimate responsibility yeah. for the constitution. They thought this was important because it said it several times, um, and that other responsibilities for the constitution are spread among a range of ministers. I put down a question which got answered last week: who's what minister is responsible for the constitution? Because I was conscious no Mm -hmm. senior minister quite often has responsibility for the constitution quite a constitution I got the response It's now the deputy prime minister who's responsible for the constitution I can find nowhere on the public record (laughs) that identifies that fact (laughs) so um so the point I was going to make it (laughs) comes back to what was said about Charlie you were secretary of state for constitutional affairs Mm -hmm. now it could be a lord chancellor as uh, that equivalent or with that responsibility, but the importance of having somebody who is clearly designated and with the clout to make it impact, to protect the constitution, because I, I agree with that point. It's not looking just at change, it's how you amend the Constitution, particularly in the context of the Union. Because at the moment we're very much in response mode, not making the case for I think things like that. You have a Secretary of State with that responsibility with the cloud to ensure other ministers take it seriously and it's not seen as a silo. Oh, their response to the constitution, we don't need to think about it. Somebody can make sure it is throughout government. So I suppose my question is, don't you agree?
0: <laughs> uh, handy manoeuvre. Hannah.
5: Thank you, Meg, and thanks for all your um, kind references to the Institute for Government's work. Um, I'm director of the Institute for Government, um, and I'm going to ask a very predictable IFG question. Um, So in recent months and and months particularly, but years of months, there's been increasing tension between the um, uh, ministers and civil servants. Do you think there is anything, what what would you propose in order to... uh, uh, address that situation. Um, there have been, in particular, questions around the, the the issue of civil service impartiality, whether that remains uh, an important uh, tenet of the way our system works, or whether, in fact, it's uh, it's it, it's no longer um, something that we ought to be striving to to preserve, and that actually uh, that has some negative effects. So I'm just interested in both your thoughts on whether I mean the rfg has has thoughts about um passing legislation to put the civil service and the status of the civil service on a on a statutory footing um and clarifying uh the accountabilities and responsibilities of ministers and civil servants in a way which would make their roles clearer and have benefits we think for both sides uh but even much more um sort of something more declaratory as you were talking about the 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 value of, of that in respect of other changes um might be beneficial, but i am interested in a bit of your views.
0: Terrific. David, would you like to start? And if we keep it fairly short, we'll hope to bring yeah. in one or two more. And I round. think,
2: I think, I mean, th- you're I mean, quite right. We should not forget about those ideas that have been mooted in the past, but then been allowed to lapse. Um, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the whole of that, that brown package. Actually, the War Powers Act idea we did look at um, uh, and, and, and in, in opposition and then In government and William Hague as foreign secretary was initially very supportive of of, of that idea, and then we looked at how that would work out in a crisis. And we just felt that you you couldn't tie the hands of government to respond in that way in practice since Iraq in 2003 I think no Prime Minister would commit uh, troops to action without getting if not. A vote in advance, a vote within a short time afterwards to approve it. So we, I think, we've moved in practice closer to the American uh, way of doing things on that. Um, Philip, yes, is my answer. Um, Straight, straight, I think, problems are part because Michael took devolution with him, um, but left other bits of constitutional affairs behind um, at the cabinet. I think Oliver has just tried to sort of claw all that back, and that is one way. Not the only way, but it's one important way in which that can be can be done. Um, I, I think on on um, Hannah's um, point, where I'm slightly party pre here, having been been you know, on an advisory panel for the the review um, that uh, the the, 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 the uh, IFG and Constitution Unit and benefits are doing. Um, I loathe the idea of um, uh, a more political, party political civil service. What that would mean in practice? Nobody's going to appoint some great partisan to administer the uh, the operations of the benefit system or the prison service. And this is going to be policy wonks who are employed as policy advisors, So what that means? You had a change of government. All the key senior policy people vanish. You have to appoint new ones. Now, do they, as in <coughs> the US, need to have parliamentary approval, or do they need to appear before a select committee to be interrogated before they are appointed? Um, Bonkers. Um, I, 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 I mean, I in my nine years in government, um, I would never dream of asking a career civil servant how they voted in the privacy of the ballot box. And you know, civil servants, like every other walk of life, people vary in quality. But I, I, I have seen civil servants, and this is true certainly of all the senior ones, they have served both Labour and Conservative governments. Now they will part of Labour coalition and Conservative governments, and i've always taken seriously that the fact that the commit career commitment my my, partly my dad was a local government officer who you know did work for the glc under um both um, horace cutler and ken livingstone um so you know, he'd seen both sides and your your due to professional duty and your professional pride is in doing the very best job you can to for the success of the policies of the people whom the electorate have given you. And I I, I think that is something of great value in our system. I would like to see a new civil service act because I do think we can't, after Johnson's approach, we can't rely on good chaps and um, conventions any longer. So I think we need to entrench the right to give frank and impartial advice uh, and perhaps to define the role of the head of the civil service as as opposed to that of um, cabinet secretary or, 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 or a secretary of state.
0: Charlie.
1: Uh, Alex's point. Um, yes, there's a tremendous tendency to have good ideas then disappear. I am not in favor of any change in the role of the law officers. I think it's good that there are political law officers, as long as they respect that they are in a different position from everybody else. Having a law officer able to speak to their colleague and say you can't do that uh, is incredibly important. So, And with the exception of Suella Braverman, law officers in recent times have completely respected that convention, and the current Attorney General is somebody who plainly yeah. respected and I do not regard to Brabman's massive and repulsive failure to comply with the role of the office as an indication that you should change it you're never going to be able to prevent against the occasional sort of person who doesn't do the job in relation to war powers I do agree we shouldn't have an act I uh, do agree that uh, politically it would be very difficult to use armed force now mm, yeah. uh, without the approval of the Commons. I do think it is important, though, that the government make clear that there is a process that they will almost invariably go through. Mm, and in particular, that means making the case to Parliament as to why they're doing it, yep. apart from the law, and also being clear what the legal position is mm. in relation to it because the legal position in relation to Iraq became so charged and caused a real problem about our legitimacy that I think as a matter of course they should set out what the legal position is and the law officers giving the advice should be available to be effectively accountable to Parliament in relation to it and that means more than saying we think there's a reasonable argument you can go to war it's got to say this is what we think in relation to uh, Philip's point, I completely agree with the principle that there should be a minister of the constitution, and that that man or woman should be somebody with status in government. It can't be somebody you've never heard of. I mean, I'm not. I've heard of Oliver Dowd, the deputy prime minister, uh, but I mean, it's absolutely re- extraordinary that. You had to wiggle his name out, and, mm. they, and presumably yeah. Mr. Oliver Dowden didn't know he was responsible for this constitution until somebody of that, that Lord N- Norton of life has asked a question. We better work out who's going to do it. It's really, really important, so that when things go wrong, Parliament can say Oliver Dowden or David Linton yeah. How the hell did you guys yeah. get into That's this mess yeah. with the Scots, the Northern Irish, yeah. the judges, Absolutely. or whatever it is? I don't agree with you, but I don't think we should go into it now about taking away prisons and probation from the Lord Chancellor. I think the Lord Chancellor is responsible for the court service, including the criminal justice service. If you take prisons and probation away from him or her, you're bound to give it to the Home Office. And that means you're cutting away from the judges who are responsible for sending people to prison or giving people information any knowledge of doing that. And my God, it would make the position a lot worse than it is at the current time ministers and civil servants i am uh, as committed and as upset at the idea of uh, these ministers trying to blame civil servants for their own failures it. which is what's going on i do think you need in some way to entrench their position but i think um, ministers should be able not on policy grounds but on delivery grounds to be able to say i'm not sure that this is the right mix there needs to be a process about how you do it the Tom Scholar example is the absolute disaster yeah he was sacked as a political yeah. symbol, mm. which is um uh, a terrible thing to do but uh, mm. the, there was a um a conversation I heard from a very very senior ex-minister who said uh I was in the home office my permanent secretary's time came to an end they wanted to appoint another permanent secretary who he thought was very similar to the previous one but what he wanted was somebody's willing to reform the Home Office and there was a big row about it and eventually he got his way I don't see any problem with that sort of involvement in relation to ministers but you can only get to that point if civil servants are absolutely confident that their political views will not in any way you know it's I I don't mean their political views but I mean the classic example is we do not want ministers to say unless you're in favor of Brexit we're not having you Mm. as the cabinet secretary that's got to be absolutely Mm. verboten but what has got to be okay is to say look I want somebody a bit more dynamic but you only get to that if people are absolutely confident that the law will protect you Mm. and there must be a price to pay for how they treated Tom Scholar you might Mm. think the price they paid was the Prime Minister, the checker were booted out of office within twenty-five minutes? But that—that that is not a reliable uh, thing. <laughs> Just one more point: the Constitution Committee, of which I am a member, and John over there, and Rachel over there, are the officials are writing a report at this very moment about the hiring and firing of permanent secretaries. And has there been a significant change in relation to that? Does Do ministers, the prime minister in particular, but other ministers as well, treat permanent secretaries and the cabinet secretary as if they're ministers who can be reshuffled? Because that's what you do not want to happen.
0: Thank you. Now, uh, we're pushing up against our end time, but we started late, so I don't want to miss the opportunity if it's okay with the two of <laughs> you yeah, to have I one know, more yeah, round yeah, of yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, of I don't want to try your patience too much because I know you've got homes to go to, but I see <laughs> Jill, other hands, one at the back.
5: Hi, uh, Jill Rutter from Institute for Government in UK and Changing Europe. Are there any pieces of law where government has given itself massive powers that you think should be taken off the statute book to prevent future governments being able to use secondary legislation to bypass Parliament? It's scrutiny?
0: Uh One here. Theodore Weir, Joseph Rantree Reform Trust. Uh, Building on exactly the same point, uh, a partisan statement, but one of the ways in which you could readily and quickly progress in many areas would simply be to repeal much of what has gone through the statute books in the last few years. So what are the mechanics and how do you go about getting a very fast repeal agenda organized. (laughs) And Alan.
3: Uh, thank you. I have a couple of questions from the online audience. Ooh. So, um, one is from Keith Raffin, former M- MP and MSP, who asks As the shadow leader of the House, Thangham Debonair has confirmed during this conference that Labour is determined to reform the House of Lords in its first term. How realistic does Lord Faulkner think this is? Isn't, isn't incremental reform, such as reducing the number of peers, more likely to succeed than radical reform? elect the second chamber and a senior official in the Scottish Government asks could David Liddington expand on his view that Sewell should not be given a firmer basis. Its importance over the last 19 over the first 19 years of, of devolution. Was to create an incentive for the UK and the devolved governments to negotiate, co produce legislation, and agree. Since 2018, that lever has been lost to devolved governments, and the UK government has found it painless to override the views of the devolved parliaments nine times in, and counting in Scotland.
0: Just those few little things in the last couple of minutes. Charlie, would you like to start? Yes,
1: first of all, I mean, uh, uh massive powers i mean it's not massive powers recently given but the lockdown powers were absolutely scandalous in their width it, as public health allowed the government to do anything it wanted literally anything it wanted and what it was doing during that particular period i'm not this is not about the substance of what they did they would do things by edict which didn't have to be approved by parliament By the time these edicts did have to be approved by Parliament, they got some new idea. And so they would have another edict and Parliament was completely excluded from it. Now, as it happens, I supported the government in relation to lockdown, but that is not the way that in that sort of situation, a parliamentary democracy should operate. They should have had to have explained and got approval in relation to it, and there should have been from time to time, climactic votes.
0: And you had Steve Baker, Graham Brady, uh, Mark Harper on your side. On uh, that, well, you? I
1: did, and I think they were right. Though I was not with them not with in them, relation but... to. But but what happens? Yeah. And this is so key to our democracy. What happens if you've got to explain to get it through, and you've got to satisfy these people? Mm. The quality goes up dramatically. Mm. So that is a massive power uh, example. And. Uh, uh, your, the, 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 the related question, repeal, um, what have we got in the statute books to repeal? Well, it's the Public Health Act in 1985, which was the end of the piece in relation to it. Are there other things? There's lots and lots of other things. I mean, for example, the public order provisions that have now uh, been gone through the illegal immigration bill that's going through at the moment, the internal markets bill, there's so many that needs reform but you can't just repeal. Mm. As those nut jobs in the Department of Business tried with the EU repeal provision, you just can't do that. You've got to have something to replace it with rather than just hang it over to ministers. And then uh, the the, the man from the sky, uh, reform of the Lords. uh, If we have a majority of 150, when we get into power as labour, you might be able to do it in the first term. If you've got a majority of one or in a minority government, it will be a lot more difficult when there are lots and lots of other things that may take time. So I think, Keith Raffin, the answer is that it will depend on the parliamentary majority. David?
2: Running running sort of quickly through these, and Jill, first of all, I think that, um, I mean, there, there are umpteen pieces of legislation from the from recent governments and from you know Labor's period in office before that which contained extensive powers to make. secondary legislation, and I think the big issue that we haven't had time to tease out tonight is scrutiny of secondary legislation. I think that there needs to be a more effectively within government until the Brexit process meant that. The government suddenly had to look at a, a, um, a hundreds of uh, P- uh, SIs just to give effect to to Brexit in a way that didn't cause uh, chaos and regulatory lacunae. Um, there was no such process, and I think there needs to be that in government and there needs to be a better parliamentary process, the problem with that is I don't see that the Commons is going to provide that it, that would be a natural role for a reformed upper chamber, but I don't think you could do that while the upper chamber remained on an unelected basis. Um, So it might be part of a new uh, reformed constitutional settlement with a reformed upper house that you gave them delaying powers or even a real veto power than the notional one rather than the notional one that they have at the the moment. that then acts to discipline on government Uh, because the power wouldn't have to be used much, but if it was there, and it was believed to be credible then governments would be more cautious about how they went about uh, sis um on um a fa- fast repeal i mean no, you you bring a government can bring forward a bill that, that that has about three clauses and says you know this uh uh the that uh the pipelines under the sea act of you know 1878 is hereby repealed um this uh uh this 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 bill shall apply to the whole of the united kingdom clause three um this shall take effect at royal assent um and 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 that's it but it would still need to go through the whole parliamentary process in both houses and i would not want to short circuit that unless there were cross-party agreements and, it, and it going through of course it would be open uh, it would be in order to move amendments in either house To do with any of the content of the bill that was being repealed, and say that except for um, clause X or schedule Y. So, and and I would, I think, I don't want to get to the position where governments have the power to railroad through fast track repeals. Um, I I think that um, on um, Keith Raffin's point about Lords' uh, reforms, I mean, I, I buy what Charlie said in the very opening remarks about number of reforms that could be made as early, early wins. I think that there'd be a lot of cross party support for, for those, yeah. um, you know, uh, in, in the context of post election, um, I think, though, but I think that if whoever is Prime Minister after the next election, then were willing to put the energy behind it, there would be a natural Follow through in the debate. Well, if you're doing this, um, right, right. compulsory retirement age, um, and/or term limits to help limit the size, so that would probably need legislation. Then you get on to it would take a, a year or two. What sort of powers should the body have? And then, if it's going to have these powers, what? How should it be selected or elected? But you need to think through that. You need to consult on that, and then you would need legislation on it. So realistically, and have a new Parliament Act to define what the powers should be and how it, uh, the reform, the second house sits. Apropos of the Commons, that would take you into the latter part of a Parliament. We, we, we carry political risks because the government might might yeah. then be. About unpopularities.
1: Just to be clear, my my answer to the Keith Raffan question was intended to be about a massive reform, not a reform yeah. along the lines of what yeah, sure, you're talking
5: yeah,
0: about. Yeah. Some of the things even count as quick wins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yes exactly, exactly.
2: But I would, you know, personally, I've always voted for a, an elected a partially or wholly elected upper house, and I, I, I um, you know, that's the way I think things need to go in a modern democracy. Uh, and I would have a Parliament Act to regulate the powers of that chamber against the commons, but I, I that wouldn't be done in year one that that would be a year three sort of effort. Perhaps it you know, could even slip to a second second term if, you know, if the government uh, achieved that. Um, but I think the debate if the government wanted to, the early wins could be used as the trigger yeah. for a, 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 a more far reaching debate about that parliamentary settlement on the uh, the, the, the official of the Scottish government's point. Well. I thought that, um, um, you know, my old sparring partner, Mike Russell, uh, put it very well when he was speaking about this and said said that, you know, Saul is there to be um, followed, save in exceptional circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think the overrides that were being complained about took place um, very much in the whole, the, the exceptional and extreme context of the Brexit debate that did arouse passions. But I think there has been a particular problem with Scotland in recent years, because the Scottish government, the SNP government has a single Mm. strategic objective, which is Scottish independence. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there's a risk for everything else as a potential source of uh, additions to the catalogue of grievance against the UK government and therefore strengthening the case for, for independence. What I did find, though, well, you know, we used to sit down with Mike Russell um, and other Scottish ministers. You know, even with the SNP government, you could find a way of accepting the profound differences that we had over constitutional affairs and work together. And I go back to where, where we got to on the whole wretched Brexit um, business, where there was something I think 153 areas of policy that were being returned from Brussels to the UK, uh, where uh, they intersected with devolved um, uh, administrative rights uh administration rights and we got it down to four out of the 153 where we were unable to come to an agreement with but with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on how this should be handled, a lot of them could be done by. Um, memorandum of understanding non legislative deals actually what others, when you looked at the detail, we didn't need to worry about it and we got to that. Handful of really difficult cases. So, an awful lot could actually be done in a very unglamorous way. Um, um, actually, but as Charlie said, mainstreaming devolution across Whitehall, therefore having a senior minister who is driving the need uh, to be aware of that and to do it in practice, has to be an essential part of getting the devolution settlement right. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, here for your patience. And yes, at the same time, I'm sorry that we have to finish there because I think we could have gone on for a lot longer. Um, let me just say a few uh, administrative words here before we get to the, the, the very thanks. Uh, just to remind everybody that this, uh, this event has been being recorded, and it will be available shortly as a video and as a podcast. Uh, if you think it's been a good event, then do make sure that you share the link with your friends and encourage them to watch and listen. If you're not already signed up to hear about the Constitution Units upcoming events, then I would strongly encourage you to do so by going to our website and clicking on the get involved link and joining our mailing list. But I can give you advance notice now that our next event uh, will be at lunchtime on the 19th of July. Uh, when the journalist Ian Dunt will be appearing at a seminar to talk about his new book how Westminster works and why it doesn't and it's not just about Parliament it's about the system as a whole. And we've got three excellent respondents uh, on parties and uh, parties and elections Parliament and government and the civil service Uh, will be in discussion with Ian. Um, So that's enough of that, let me move to thanks, to thank these two fantastic speakers, Uh, this has been a wonderful, fascinating evening, and I think we could have gone on a lot longer, Mm. Uh, but we've benefited enormously from your wisdom. Thank you very much to the audience who are here, and to your wonderful questions, thank you to the audience online, and sorry that we couldn't get you all in. But I would also like to thank really all of the speakers uh, who've been, who's taken part in our conference in the last two two days, two years, it feels like that. Uh, (laughs) It's been enormously uh, enriching. We've had some really fascinating discussions. Thank you also to all those who have chaired our panels, who fielded questions at our panels, and particularly maybe now is the moment to thank those uh, by name who have helped behind the scenes, including Ed Rowe, And Sophie Andrews McCarroll but also various others who've made uh, all of this happen so smoothly Um, as i've given you an advanced notice. uh, Earlier, the Institute for Government and Constitution unit do hope to publish a report very soon on options uh, for constitutional reform under the next government, and I think it's been. uh, very much enlightened by the discussions that we've been having over the last two days, and not least this evening, so thank you very much, everybody, and I hope to see you at another of our events very soon
5: thank
0: you